This episode is brought to you by AARP. 18 years from tonight, Grant Gill will become a comedy legend when he totally kills it at his improv class's graduation performance. Knees will be slapped. Hilarity will ensue. That's why he's already keeping himself in shape and razor sharp today with wellness tips and tools from AARP to help make sure his health lives as long as he does. Because the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org slash healthy living. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. Welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. It's been a little while since we did one of our up-to-date segments where we cover what's interesting to us of science and the news. So we're going to do just that this time. Welcome back, Adam. Thanks for having me. And of course, science forges ahead. So there's lots of interesting things coming out in the literature and look forward to discussing a few with you. So one that caught my eye because it also involved a kind of citizen science element, which is always really cool. And it's just a simple behavior of an animal that was observed by a bunch of people. And it tells us something really interesting about sort of the evolution of social behavior. So this is a article that was in science, uh, animal culture, and or in the subtopic animal culture. And the first author is Barbara Klump, with Lucy Applin being the senior author. It's called Innovation and Geographic Spread of a Complex Foraging Culture in an Urban Parrot. And essentially, it started out with a couple of email exchanges where people were, these researchers were talking about how they observed a cockatoo doing something really interesting. It was opening up a household garbage bin. Okay, like, do you mean those lidded blue, black, and green bins we put out in front of our our street uh, every week. Exactly. So you can imagine that that's kind of a gold mine of food for any animal, <laughs> but that, you know, we have those lids on it for a reason in part to prevent animals from, you know, going in and making a big mess. But these particular cockatoos figured out how, or I started maybe with one, um, how to open it using a, a whole series of behaviors. And then what was interesting is that over the course of time, um, this was in Australia, Sydney and Wollongong, these suburbs of Sydney, what they did is they had uh, people who see these birds fill out online surveys. So residents um, were asked whether they had observed cockatoos opening the lids of these kinds of garbage bins. And so they, they ended up collecting over a thousand reports by, you know, 1,322 participants in many suburbs. And what they found is that over time, uh, I think it was about maybe a year and a half. So between so before t- 2018 till late 2019, people observed more and more uh, of these 
birds doing it, but it seemed to have spread in a sort of in a way that makes sense, in a way that it would only have spread if one bird was sort of teaching another bird how to do this. I see. So there was some social transmission of this newly learned behavior. Yeah, exactly. And that to me is really interesting that you can have social learning in an animal like a parrot. I mean, we know that um, parrots do kind of mimic sounds and they seem to be social creatures. They seem to be interested in other parrots, but also other creatures like humans. But to me, this is really just an interesting way of looking at how uh, what we can learn from the fact that these these cockatoos seem to teach each other how to do this one thing that, you know, gets them food. So wait, there's wild cockatoos in <laughs> the suburbs of Sydney. Uh, yep. They're called wild sulfur crested cockatoos. Huh. Uh, yeah. Because I thought we were special with our parrots of Telegraph Hill here in San Francisco. <laughs> But those little cockatoos, I mean, those things are cute as a button. Yeah, no, they're they're great. And they're not that little. Like from the picture, uh, it actually looks like it's probably about a, a foot, foot and a half in size. But yeah, we have this little, I think, I think the parrots in San Francisco are just came from, you know, one source and they just have like this one little flock. But I'd be very curious to see, you know, if you look back at some other early studies of social transmission of learned behaviors, particularly among, I think it was Japanese macaques mm-hmm. of uh, yam washing. If you remember, the way that was transferred, if I remember, it was really from adults to their juveniles. Mm. And then the juveniles would take it forward and kind of repeat the process. So I'd be curious here when this lid lifting behavior, if that was done between adults or within kin uh, or, or, or youngsters, just really what the pattern of transmission was and what their social relationships were. They did find that both adult and juvenile cockatoos opened bins. So, you know, it's not it's not just that, you know, it's it's older or just, you know, younger animals. Um, and they also found that individuals that were higher in the male dominance hierarchy were more likely to attempt and succeed opening the bin. And the idea was that that maybe they're it's because they're heavier and more dominant. They might have a strength advantage if it's actually something hard for them to do physically. So if it was just the, the younger individuals were more likely to engage in social learning, which some other studies have shown, that didn't seem to hold in this particular observational study. And they're using it as a food source for themselves. And then also, I wondered if, do they send them back back to their their mates or their their offspring? Yeah, I don't know. I think people. I think what they were just looking at. Yeah, citizen science. There's somewhat of a of a of a limitation because it's really purely observational. They may not have the ability to track individual members. If you think of other ecology studies where you have people like a Jane Goodall, you know, out in the field tracking individuals over time, you really start to understand the identities of those individuals and their social relationships. Whereas citizen scientists, I think it's, and, and I love that, but I think it's really, they probably don't have that level of granularity on a bird bird by bird basis. So so they did temporarily color mark about 486 cockatoos in three put in three different hotspots. So it looks like uh, they went out and like okay. drew supplemented, on supplemented, yeah, <laughs> and then asked people, you know, whether they saw a marked cockatoo or an unmarked cockatoo. And anyway, that's sort of one one way in which they did it. But yeah, I, you know, obviously there are some limitations, but it's still it's just a great example of how like it's not very expensive to get some science done. Yeah. That is really very relevant to what it means to be human. 
or social. Um, there's one other quick study that I wanted to tell you about that came out of um, UC Berkeley, and this was in rodents. You know, Dasher Keltner there has a whole whole institute devoted for I think that it's something like um, you know for for things that are good, right? It's like the we're looking at how do we how do we make a society better? And so this particular study was looking at empathy in rodents, and what has been shown is that if there is a lab rat in distress, a fellow lab rat will work to rescue that lab rat. But what they found was that they were more likely to do that and they were more likely to, the rats were more likely to drive their reward circuitry if that rat that was, you know, in distress was was kin or from an in-group. Okay. And, and so this is, I like this study a lot. And as well, because it's a collaboration across many different universities. So the first author is Inbal Benami Bartal at Tel Aviv University, but there are also collaborators from um, Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto and at Berkeley and Stanford and, and elsewhere. And what they did is they essentially, you know, they, they, they used a number of different measures of what's happening in the brain, including the sort of gene CFOS and sort of like the genetic uh, implications of this uh, behavior. And what they found to be very brief is that, yes, when the rats approached a trapped other rat, they did activate sort of aspects of what we think of as the empathy network. So mm-hmm. frontal and insular cortex. Mm-hmm. But if that member was part of their in-group or someone that they considered, you know, close to them uh, for whatever reason, that also activated their reward circuitry. So they were much more motivated to act on the empathy that they were feeling or so we can speculate on the basis of, of this information. I mean, the genetic relatedness makes perfect sense because that would even be consistent with very old notions of kin selection that go back to, I think, Robert Trivers. Mm-hmm. You know, the unrelated but in-group is, is an interesting wrinkle that seems consistent with our kind of our everyday experience, right? But they probably, I wonder if experimentally the way they do that is simply have an unrelated pups grow up together. And so in the same house, you know, by housing, I mean, kind of the cage they grow up in. But again, so there's a familiarity and feeling like there's, even though they're not genetically related, they probably have some Again, some association with each other. That's yeah, right. Yeah, CFOS is that's, that's a very crude measure of just the neural activation, right? So it's a way of just basically saying like this part of the brain seems to have quote unquote lit up or is, is a measure of a short term activation. I guess the natural experiment you'd always say is, okay, what if you make a small lesion in insular cortex or a small lesion? Will you, again, it's, it's sometimes hard to interpret, but I guess you'd expect them to not go either. Yeah, yeah I guess they to wouldn't go the help. Yeah, yeah exactly. show this eusocial behavior. Yeah, so yeah. And so the way they did the in-group, you're exactly right. They had cage mates as sort of the in-group versus mm-hmm. sort of stranger rats. Yeah. <laughs> the out-group. Yeah. So what came across your desk, Adam? Well, there were two very interesting articles in the July 1st issue of Nature, and I'm very excited to tell you about them. Okay, cool. The first one has to do with the microbiome, ah. an area that you and I have a lot of interest in. And the second has to do with migratory patterns of birds and seed dispersal oh. as a potential mitigating factor for species lost or, or, the, or the potential negative impacts of climate change on the plant world. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. 
Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Well, yeah, so microbiome we're interested in recently because... You know, we had Tim Spector on the show talking about the impact of the microbiome on how our metabolism. And you and I just recently had our microbiomes checked. And what did your results say? I have a beautiful microbiome. (laughs) It is highly diverse. And apparently, from the initial understanding, I have an over, over overabundance of the really the good ones, which I'm excited about, and very few of the bad ones. And again, this is sort of an evolving area, but I was I was pretty happy. How did your results? Uh huh. So your your kombucha addiction is paying off. Oh, and beyond that, I mean, you know, a lot (laughs) of fermented foods Uh and um, great, 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 good, good. Um, So mine was mixed. I had a lot of the good bacteria, but I also had a significant number of one species of bad bacteria, the species that seems to potentially explain some of my sugar cravings about why I want to have a lot of sugar. Yeah. Yeah. So we got to figure out how to kill those puppies off. Well, what you'll like in this paper I want to describe to you today from Delanoi Bruno et al. They're a really group largely based out of Washington uh, University of St. Louis of trying to understand how can we feed the good bugs and have them outcompete what can be the bad bugs. Yeah. And so what is cool about this paper is it combines both animal studies and corresponding human studies. And it's really looking at the role of dietary fiber. I think we've all heard about better to have fiber. And I think we all think, well, boy, it keeps me regular, but it's, you know, it has a greater impact and an important impact on the microbial flora that, that, that live in our guts. And so let me describe very quickly. First, the paper started out with germ-free mice, Right. Okay. So they are going to be re- reared in a germ-free environment, very controlled environment. So they presumably lack any substantive uh, uh, microbiome. And they are going to be inoculated with the microbiome constituents from human obese, pa- human obese subjects. Hmm. Right. So these are human beings. You take a sample of their stool, stool sample, do some, some techniques to make it so that you can then basically seed the gastrointestinal tracts of these mice. Okay. And then they put them on what would be considered charitably a Western diet, which is a high saturated fat, low fruits and vegetable, and critically, you know, low fiber. Okay. From the low uh, fruits and vegetable Mm -hmm. diet. The stuff we're not supposed to eat. Right. 
Well, the key is is that you know this is it's been known in obese individuals that certain uh, forms of a bacteria, certain species of bacteria, are underrepresented and they're thought to be uh, beneficial, particularly from the genus Bacteroides. Okay, and that's going to be an important. Bacteroides. Focus. Bacteroides. Okay. And so what they did here was they basically took these germ-free mice and then started to give them while they're on a background of a high-fat, low-fiber diet, different types of plant-based fiber supplementation hmm. to see, can you start to manipulate and alter the composition of their microbiome? So they're not like taking away, they're not making the the rodents eat anything different. They're just adding something to their diet. Right. So they're still on this low fat, high, I'm sorry, a high fat, low fiber diet. And now what we're adding to them is a either pea from, you know, from green peas, pea, pea fiber supplement. They also have another condition where they're giving the fiber from oranges and also from barley bran supplement. And basically what you find across these different types of fibers, broadly speaking, because you're providing the fuel for these good bacteroides bacteria, they start to outcompete and evidence of their constitution starts to go up. So their proportion oh, wow. of the good bacteria. So it's working. Just from, it's, just, it's working. And then they're, they're maintaining a typical Western diet hmm. on the background. But what gets even cooler, of course, is that now they're going to do a similar study, but in human beings. Mm. So these are going to be, uh, these are 12 obese individuals today. They're kept on a standard high saturated fat, low fruits and vegetable diet. And then they're giving them uh, different forms of fiber supplementation, the same types that they gave the mice. Oh, wow. And in one condition, they had simply P, P-E-A, P fiber. And that led to a boost in bacteroides as well as when they do both a genomic analysis looking for bacterial enzymes that process this type of fiber, you see those go up as well too, which mm. doesn't, you know, that's that's gonna be the metabolic pathway for for digesting the fiber. But then crucially, they find that when you add additional, so this a, a different set of obese patients where you give them then multiple types of fibers, mm. the three pea, orange, and barley bran, more is better. And they say mm. a more pronounced increase in the beneficial bacteroides. Oh, interesting. So, so it's not the total fiber. It's the diversity of the fiber. But it is total fiber too. I guess we can't really... Oh, so that they didn't have like that. Odd. They didn't have huh. that. That's an interesting control where they're just giving three times the dose of pea yeah. versus the three yeah. separate, you know, combined together, if yes. I remember right. My guess is it may not matter too much, right? Because hmm. really the thinking is that you're just providing the fuel and a competitive advantage for those beneficial bacteria, which are sort of uniquely or preferentially eating, you know, this type of fiber, you know, supplementation. Got it. So it might not matter whether you give, you know, yeah. five grams or 15 grams of, if it's the same because you're kind of, you it's know, just really kind of more is better. Right. More okay. Better. Okay. Yeah. But another thing that's kind of interesting too, I guess, is, is that there was really good correspondence between the mouse studies, these germ-free inoculated mice, mice with the human results. So hmm. that, that lends more credence to their use as an experimental tool to, again, to start to try to tease apart all this crazy complexity of host genomics, diet and environment, and of course, microbiome composition. Yeah. So the germ-free mice can provide a nice model system to start to unpack that. Because that's so hard to control in human beings. You know, we had to eat just fast for a couple of days and eat some specific foods. And even that felt onerous. <laughs> Imagine yeah. that you had to do that for weeks yeah. or months. I guess okay. what I like about it too is because when I did my first microbiome analysis 
you know, probably seven years ago when some of the very earliest startups, all they could really tell you was some metric of diversity, mm. right? It was mm-hmm. more diversity is better than less diversity. And I totally buy that. And even though they could identify through DNA analysis, the actual, the, the genus and species, there wasn't a lot of information on really what the impact of that particular species was. And I feel that the, the field is getting more to a more of a granular view of these different bacteria, which do what would have an impact and just really how to characterize their presence or lack thereof. So that's that's kind of exciting to me. So what's the second paper? Now, the second paper is we're switching gears a little bit, but we're going to also study the effects of, of our animal friends. And so I think we'll all appreciate that uh, continuing uh, climate change and global warming is having a huge impact on the environment and certainly the distribution of both plants and animals as their historical ecological niches are being altered, in some cases potentially beyond the phenotypic range that these species can accommodate, right? They simply, if you're used to living and and reproducing in a certain environment and therefore, and yet it becomes much hotter, is your species vulnerable to extension or can you be viable? And, and for plants, this is particularly important because they really can't migrate. They don't right. have feet to just get up and run, but yet they do have mechanisms of seed dispersal. Hmm. One being, of course, migratory birds. And so a, a paper in July in the July 1st issue of Nature by Gonzalez Varro and colleagues was looking at how or whether plants could keep pace or whether they're uh, distribution and seed dispersal could be, and a paper by Gonzalez Varro and colleagues was looking at the role of migratory birds and seed dispersals and trying to basically get a sense of whether this migration pattern of the of the of whether the migration pattern of the trees and plants could be a beneficial adaptation to ongoing global warming. Oh, so like you know, the birds might escape the heat by going to a different place and therefore bring the seeds with them. And so in a sense, they're kind of moving the forest or they're moving the plants. Exactly right. Different- Sorry, I didn't I didn't ex- describe it well, but that's exactly right. Huh. And so I guess the TLDR of this is that possibly for a small number of plants. And so it was. it's a very data-rich paper if hmm. you have a chance to, to dig into it. But what they basically found is that there's more southward migration when it comes to fleshy fruits, you know, with trees with okay. fleshy fruits, fleshy trees with fleshy fruit and their dispersal. There's more southward migration to warmer, hotter climates than northward migration to colder climates. Hmm. So that's one potential problem, right? Because okay. the idea right. is that, well, some of these need to move to cooler climes. Uh-huh. And they also looked at DNA analysis of the droppings to really try to identify which species we're actually moving with seeds. And so the point is, is their, their, their view is that there's a subset of plants for which an ongoing migration based on seed dispersal could help them to adapt to ongoing climate change. But there's going to be many, many plants for which this mechanism is simply not going to be enough. Sure. So it's an exception and it's a hopeful story, but certainly it, it also highlights all the plants then, that are not going to benefit from it. Well, that's it for another episode. Thank you for listening. And if you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Kyla Raihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joel, Stefan Meyer-Awald, Dale Lamaster, and Charles Blyle. 
This episode was edited by Riley Byrne. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next time. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.